Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be here, to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, when I first was speaking to Adam about uh, coming here, uh, he caught me off guard, told me that I was going to be expected to preach. I said, oh, well, uh, give me six months. Um, and lo and behold, about four months in, Pastor Adam started dropping some hints that it was right around the corner. And then uh, fast forward to a few weeks after that, he told me very directly, yeah, yeah David, you're preaching here. So, um, and yeah, it's been six months. That's hard to believe. I've been here since mid-March, and that's really exciting to me. But this passage that we're going through today here, we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 2 in the book of James. We've been going through the book of James, and last week, Pastor uh, Dirk talked about the sin of partiality, and that God is not partial in showing us grace. So likewise, we are not to be partial in being gracious to others. So we continue on here, starting in uh, verse 14, and And I believe that this passage is going to do one of two things in the heart of a believer as we look at this. Number one, it can fill the reader with great joy because as we look at what James says here, and we look at our own hearts and what God has done in us and through us and how he has changed us, it can be cause for celebration. The other reaction that I believe can happen in the heart of the believer is is maybe one of concern for the opposite. Maybe you look at what James writes here in this passage and, and you're concerned. It convicts you. Either way, these are good reactions. The first is good because it's cause for joy and celebration. The second is good because it's an opportunity to turn to God and say, God, I want this. I want this change in my heart. I want your spirit active in me, changing me. The only reaction that I'm concerned about is a non-reaction, and we'll talk about that today. A reaction where you look at what James says here and go, man, whatever, I don't don't care. That would be concerning. But let's let's jump in here at verse 14 and, and see what James writes. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our hearts to your word this morning. Lord, do in us what this word was meant to have it do in us. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, I pray that you would just have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, right off the bat, let's just summarize what James' main thrust of this passage is, the thing that he asserts here. He says, if you claim to have a living faith in God through his Son, then that faith will do something. That faith will do something in your life. If you claim to have a living faith, then that faith will be evident and active in your life. Or let's reverse that. If your faith is not producing anything, if it is not doing anything, James would argue that that really isn't faith at all. Now, there's been a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of arguing over this passage. A lot of people have written a lot of different thoughts on this. So before I dive in, I want to make something very clear. James is not arguing that works are what save you. He is not saying that what you do saves you at all. He cannot argue that. He must not argue that. Works do not save a person. What you do does not save you. But rather, what you do points to what God has done in you and through you and for you. James is also not adding anything on top of faith. He is not saying that faith plus works are what save you. And he is not making an either-or statement of faith or works. And we'll see that as we dive in. James is saying that faith will produce fruit, and that faith does something in the heart and the actions of the believer. Just to remind everyone what Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8. So Paul says that salvation is by faith through grace alone. And James comes along and says that faith without works is dead. And a lot of people get confused here and go, well, isn't that contradictory? And and spoiler, it's not contradictory. It's not contradictory at all. They don't clash, and here's why. Paul is writing about the root of salvation. Paul is talking about the root. It is our faith in Christ's gift of grace that we are saved. And then James here is talking about the fruit of our salvation. Your salvation is through faith, but your faith will bear fruit if it is a true and living faith. So we are saved by our faith, and then as a result of our faith, the Spirit of God living in us In our lives, we will see a progression and growth of spiritual fruit 
And that transformation, that growth, will be evident by what we do. So let's pick up here in verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So James starts here with a simple question. He says, what good is it? What good is your faith if there's no works there? Other translations even say, what profit is it? What does it profit if you say you have faith but do not have works? And he gives us a really practical example of what that looks like. He says if, if somebody comes and is hard, they're really hard up on luck, they, they're, they're, in, they're really struggling, they've got ratty old clothes that are torn and, and they barely keep the, the wind and the freezing cold out, and on top of that they're starving to death. They're starving. And you turn around to them and say, hey, um, you should go be warm. You should go be full of food. What good does that do them at all? I, th I think we can look at that and go, that, that would be pretty awful if somebody did that. If you, if you walked up to somebody on the side of the street and was just, hey, you should go be warm. You should go be full of food. I think we can all agree that that would be a pretty terrible thing. What, what good are their words there if they aren't followed with any action to help the person? And in fact, their lack of action shows their heart toward that person. Their lack of action shows their heart. They said something nice, they wished the person well, but without helping them, they don't really care about the person. In fact, it's quite obvious that they couldn't care less at all about that individual. So what good were your words? What use were your words? Likewise, James says, the same is true about your faith. If you say that you have faith, but you don't do anything with it, what good is it? What use is it? Not only does he question the use of it, but what does he say next? He says that faith by itself, no works, is dead. That's some strong language. He doesn't say that faith without works is empty or hypocritical or that it's asleep. He says it's dead. It's not a living faith. And I struggle to think what stronger statement James could possibly make. Now, the good news here is that if you are convicted by this, if you see this and go, God, I want that, then that is already evidence of the Spirit doing something in your heart and therefore there is life, there is movement, there, there, there is something happening there. And that is evidence of faith. But if there is no conviction of that whatsoever, you hear this and go, whatever, that's not for me, that, then I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Uh, James would say that there's probably no life there. If you just claim that you have faith, but there is no evidence of that faith, there is no fruit coming from that, then it is dead. If there's nothing happening in your heart longing for fruit to pour out from your faith, then it might not be a living faith. Now, in the following verses, we're going to see 
a questioner up here. James is going to insert a questioner, an antagonist, so to speak, or, and, and he's going to insert this questioner to make a point, and he's going to show us two examples of non-living faith. So first, the James says that this questioner says the following, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. To which James replies, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, so this guy is trying to separate faith and works and say that they're two mutually exclusive things. But, but James says, no, you can't separate faith and works at all, because if I have faith, I will show my faith through what I do. If what you are saying or labeling as faith has not created or produced anything in the way that you live your life, it is the, what James says at the end of verse 20, useless. And then he's going to come underneath this and add another layer. He's going to add another layer to that, this, this element. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Uh, now, understand who James is talking to here. Uh, he is, uh, at this point in time, to the people that James is writing to, in this culture, uh, belief in a monotheistic God, belief in one God, is unheard of outside of the Christian and Judaic faith. It's, it's absolutely unheard of. So this person has really sound doctrine. This person has really sound doctrine for the time, but, but James says, look, even the demons have right doctrine. And to be honest, demons probably have more scriptural knowledge than you or I. They probably know more about what is in the Bible than you or I do. But they shudder. So James is bringing the heat here, pun intended. He's, he's ratcheting this up. He's, he's taking this to a, a whole new level. Demons know sound doctrine. The deceived empty fool knows sound doctrine. And neither of them have a faith that can save. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. Say that one more time. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. See, you can have somebody who has all this knowledge about Scripture. They know their Bible backwards and forwards and have incredibly sound doctrine, but that does not mean they have a real love for God and a real love for his people. They're just intellectual. James calls this person an empty fool who is nothing more than a corpse. That's really tough. <laughs> I mean, he's getting in our face here with this. So up to this point, James gives us an example of dead faith, and then we've also seen demonic faith. Now he's going to give us two examples of what a living, demonstrated faith looks like. He's going to show us two people that believed God, and that belief produced something in their life. And by the way, I, I love what he does here. He, he gives us two examples of people who have living faith, but from anyone else's perspective, uh, these two people would be totally opposite. 
He uses Abraham, the father of Israel, and Rahab, a prostitute. So you've got Jew and Gentile, you've got man and woman, you've got patriarch of the Jewish faith and a prostitute. And there are probably more ways we could break that down to say they're opposite, but you get the point. And he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So, Abraham, a patriarch, was, he was married to Sarah, and Sarah was childless, she was barren. But God comes and promises to Abraham that even in your old age, even though you're biologically past when you should ever possibly be able to have a child, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a miracle child and the father of a great nation. So Abraham and Sarah have a son. They name him Isaac. But then in the middle of raising Isaac, God says to Abraham, hey, you know that son that I gave you? The one I said would be father of a great nation. I want you to take him to a place that I show you and offer him up to me as a sacrifice. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? James is telling us here that Abraham's action in trusting God and doing as God commanded proclaimed that and demonstrated that he trusted in God above anything else. Above anything else. And of course, the rest of the story, God spares Isaac. He stays Abraham's hand, and, and Isaac goes on to be the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, James gives us this second example of faith here in verse 25. We've, we've looked at who is widely considered the greatest man in the Old Testament. Now let's look at this prostitute that he talks about. In the book of Joshua, this woman had a house on the very wall of Jericho. And the Israelites, they're marching to Jericho, and the military intelligence in Jericho was reporting what was happening. They had reported that the... That, the Red Sea had parted in front of the Israelites as they were leaving the, uh, the greatest nation, uh, uh, the greatest army the, the world had seen at this point in the, in the Egyptian army. And they were also reporting on what was happening to the enemies that Israel, the Israelites were facing along the way as, as they moved. And now these two spies from the Israelite army come into the city, and Rahab, this prostitute, hides them in her home. And, and the, king's, the king's aware of this. He, he's aware that these two spies have entered the city, and they know that they've entered the house. So they come, come looking for these spies, and uh, she says, oh yeah, they, they were here, but they, they went off another way. So she sends out these men on a wild goose chase. And 
Rahab talks to the men, and, and I want to look at what she says here. She says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Don't miss what happens here. Rahab just professed faith. Rahab just professed faith in God. Everyone in Jericho had heard this report. Everyone in Jericho had heard what the Israelites were doing, but she alone began to believe, and that belief changed her actions. She believed it. She says, For the Lord your God, He is God. And then she took action, and that belief led her to the point of committing treason against her own country, risking what this would have meant was death at the hands of her own people. If she had been caught, she would have been killed. And she is being a blessing and a help to the Lord's people. The thing that Abraham and Rahab have in common is they both had a faith in God, and that faith showed itself by what they did. And it's representative of what Christ says when he said, a good tree will produce good fruit, but a bad tree will produce bad fruit. These two on the surface, totally different people, both show the fruit of their faith through what they do. So now James wraps up the chapter with this. He says, For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So in case you've missed it, this is the third time that he says this. Just one more time. Faith without works is dead. You're looking at a body. It hasn't breathed. There's no pulse. It hasn't moved for hours. It's probably safe to assume that person is not alive. Likewise, if someone has supposed faith and is claiming faith, but there's nothing going on, there's no forward movement, there's, no, there's nothing happening in their life, there's no visible fruit to be seen, it's only reasonable to say after, after a time that this might be a dead faith. I mean, think about it like this. Maybe if I were to say, um, for, for years, I would say, man, I'm really into fitness. Man, I'm going to the gym five, six times a week. I'm working out a couple hours a day. And man, two, three years go by, and I'm still way overweight. I'm still, you know, you might start to question the validity of what I'm saying. You might go, I'm not really sure that guy is going to the gym every day that he's really working out, that he's really into fitness. You might question the validity of that claim. So we've gotten this far talking about faith without works, and we've seen very clearly established here that there needs to be something more than words and sound doctrine. So what are the works? What are the works that demonstrate a living faith? Now it's Important here to fight off the inner legalist. It's really easy to want to come up with some kind of a checklist and go, uh, just do X, Y, and Z, and go through my list, and man, if I just do this, then I'm good. No. 
A vindicating checklist apart from a, a real love for God is not what we're talking about here. If we're just kind of try and have a list and get up enough willpower to check things off our list, then we're right back to the mess that got us here in the first place, and we're right back in a desperate need for a Savior. We cannot separate what we do from a love for God driving what we do. There is no true transformation, it doesn't last, and we find ourselves right where we started before. So what's James talking about here? What are the works? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Also, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love the Lord with all you've got, then go love your neighbor as yourself. That is the work of the believer. That is what we are called to do, is to feed and manifest a love for God that is expressed outwardly in a love for his people. But before we close, um, let's talk about people for a second. Uh, people are hard to love sometimes. Um, I imagine growing up there were moments where my parents had moments where it was, I was hard to love sometimes. I live with my brother. Sometimes he's hard to love sometimes, and he's my brother. Um, <laughs> when he doesn't wash the dishes, man, I, I don't know. Um, there are absolutely people I do not love, let alone like. Anyone else feel that way? Sorry if your hands are down. I really don't believe you. Um, <laughs> uh, so how do we do this? Because if we are honest, there are people we don't like, let alone love. There are people we don't want to be around or actively avoid. There are people we look down on and don't follow through on this call to love. And the answer to our difficulty with people is not just to muster up more willpower to love them harder. Pastor John Piper once wrote, The Christian life of love is a supernatural life. It is not produced by human forces. It takes resources that we do not have. This is very crucial for us to admit, and it is humbling. You see, on our own, we cannot love the way that we are called to. We simply cannot. I am not, by nature, a loving person. Nobody, by nature, is a loving person. If we were, if, if we were, were Love would not be a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we were naturally loving, then it would just be another element of our personality or our upbringing. Acknowledging this is important because it means you will look for your source of love from outside of yourself. Loving others begins with God's love for us begins with experiencing that love, and through experiencing that love and falling more deeply and desperately in love with the person of Jesus, 
In Christ's love for us, we are transformed into new life. We become new creations that are able to love through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we began this morning, we started by looking at Ephesians 2.8, but, but let's revisit that again and, and, and look at two more verses on top of that. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one might boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Through faith, God is preparing you for good works. It's not about you mustering up the willpower. The good works are prepared for you to walk in. All you have to do is join God in that. God is doing the work in you and through you and for you to live out your faith in love for him and love for other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that through your spirit, we would be able to love others the way you call us to. Lord, give us a deep and genuine love for others, that we would demonstrate what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.